a lot of, you know, what would be considered classic success, right? Revenue growth, customer growth, those up into the right metrics led me to believe that I was really good at this. Um, they made me think that I knew what I was doing. And once you do that a few times and it works, then you really start to believe your own bullshit. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have Rand Fishkin, who's the founder of SparkToro and newly minted author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. Previously, Rand co-founded Moz, the largest SaaS company in SEO, backed by the largest community of SEO experts on the planet. He also co-founded Inbound.org, the smartest inbound marketing community online that was acquired by HubSpot. And he says if you feed him great pasta or great whiskey, he'll give you the cheat code to rank number one on Google. Rand, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. Um, Can you tell us what Moz does? Sure. Yeah. So Moz makes software for uh, search engine optimization professionals, which is a branch of marketing that basically helps websites and web pages get ranked in the organic, the non-paid results in Google uh, and, and YouTube and Bing and other search engines. But that, uh, yeah, that business basically started in 2004 as a blog and then became a consulting company and then a software company. And I raised a few rounds of venture funding. Uh, and today, Moz is around $47 million a year in revenue and has a couple hundred employees uh, based in Seattle, which is where I am. And I've just, I've just left the company about a, a month ago. And so I think for a lot of people who especially marketers, um, people who are building brands, when they think of SEO, they think of Moz. Um, So how did you see the industry develop from that point you wrote that blog and then kind of growing clearly exponentially um, into a $47 million business? Well, so my big hope was that people would take SEO more seriously, would see it as not a sketchy black hat world where people are doing shady stuff that Google doesn't like uh, in order to manipulate search engines and get their rankings, but rather a marketing practice that's both technical and creative, uh, just like many others, that is absolutely a legitimate way to get traffic. And in fact, the biggest and best way to get traffic uh, on the web. And I think, you know, I'm proud to say that that the SEO industry, you know, hopefully with, with some help from, from what we did at Moz, uh, is there. You know, today, SEO is a practice that very few marketers ignore. The reputation of the field is, you know, as good as pretty much any other tactic in the web marketing world. And I think that is, that's saying a lot. I mean, that, that's a tremendous amount of progress in, you know, a short decade. How did you go from writing this blog, building out this consultancy, um, and like, what was your background? Did you know about business development? Did you know how to manage a PNL? Like, how tell us about your journey of like getting turning it into a viable business? <laughs> no, no, and I have no idea how I knew how to do those things. Yeah, so, um, let's see. I would say I barely knew how to format an Excel spreadsheet. Um, but I learned, I really did not know how to run a PL statement. In fact, when I was made CEO, I probably would have had to Google PL before knowing that it stood for profit and loss. Um, when venture, when a venture capitalist in Seattle, Michelle Goldberg, who was our first investor reached out and said, Hey, we, you know, we might be interested in what you're building. Uh, I had to Google venture capital because I did not know uh, what it was or how it worked. What year was that? And were you (laughs) fundraising? Or Uh, 2007. Okay. Yeah. Were you actively raising money at that point or you had just found? No, no, just, you know, Michelle sent me an email and said, Hey, this thing you're building looks exciting um, and interesting. And we'd love to chat. And, 
you know, at the time I, I didn't really understand what venture capital, I thought it was like, Oh yeah, they, they like kind of buy your business and then they run it and you just work for them. So yeah, which is overly simplistic, but yeah, that's not, not quite how it works. Um, you know, I just learned by doing, I mean, I struggled, I stumbled, uh, I messed up a lot, you know, lost and founder is basically about messing up a whole lot and then finding an occasional path that worked. Can you tell me about one of the incidences that stick out in your mind um, during that learning curve where you did feel like you had a major failure and then how did you recover from it? I think, you know, one of the big things that I thought I was supposed to do with my time and energy uh, at Moz after, after we raised our first round of funding and started to grow a little bit, I thought that my job was go out and build lots of relationships with more investors so that you can raise more money in the future. Um, and I probably devoted, you know, over the course of the next five years, a good 30 to 40% of my time to doing exactly that. And in fact, I think that's still very, very common in the Silicon Valley startup world as, you know, a piece of, revered wisdom, right? That the CEO's job is to hire the right people and to get the company funded. And that means lots of relationship building and telling the story to investors, those kinds of things. And maybe that's right for some companies, but I, in my opinion, it was um, absolutely a, a waste of time for me. Uh, and if I could go back in time, I would, I would take those years of effort uh, and put them towards making better products and serving our customers better and staying closer to them and um, the kinds of things that actually make a business work well. And were you having those feelings while you were raising money? Like this is a waste of time or were you actually enjoying the process? Oh God, no, it's, it's awful. Um, absolutely awful process. At least, at least for me, I know some entrepreneurs love it, uh, but I, I, I despise it. I mean, I mean, the, um, I'm sort of in that, in that mode with SparkToro right now, not from venture capitalists, but from angel investors. And uh, I was having breakfast with a friend today and I, I told him that, you know, I was in this process and he said, oh yeah, it's the worst. It's like asking your parents for extra allowance. It just feels gross and <laughs> um, he puts you back in the, the shoes of being a, a powerless kid again. And um, so, no, I, I really, really disliked it. Um, I also find many, not all, but many of the people in the venture capital world, especially in Silicon Valley, which is where I went most of the time, you know, I'd fly down there um, every month or so and uh, have a bunch of meetings. I just found that it's a very transactional mindset um, and one that is, you know, particularly um, unfriendly to a sort of more more human, more organic approach to business and life. How would you, I mean, it seems like you would then consider yourself having a more human, more organic approach to life. Like what does that actually mean? Uh, well, thankfully these folks are at theoretical zero. So in order to be more human, you only need to be a tiny step <laughs> above that. Um, no, let's see. I, I think it means that you, um, you want to balance the uh, desire for uh, raw growth and for doing, you know, short-term things that can help your, um, you know, your company's growth rate or your ability to add revenue or add users, uh, balancing that against other interests of all kinds, right? So the interests of your customers, uh, what's best for, you know, the world and the planet and the community, uh, what's right for your employees, what's right for your family and your personal time, um, what's right for your life and your friends, what's right for your mental and emotional health. Uh, and there's definitely a, uh, I think the Silicon Valley startup subculture glorifies sacrificing all of those things in service to the philosophy of the cancer cell. Grow. And so did that, I guess, cancer cell um, affect you as a CEO 
um, in your growth trajectory. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Because, you know, once you, once you raise that um, initial round of capital, you are making a promise, um, a, a, an explicit promise uh, that is backed by the law. Um, so, you, you know, you have a fiduciary obligation to do what is sort of best and right for the company. Uh, and th- there can absolutely be reasonable arguments about, you know, sacrificing short term things for longer term things. But uh, the mission that you're on is is to return, you know, five to 10 times the amount of capital that was invested in you in five to seven years, because that is what your um, venture investors have promised to their LPs, their limited partners, the people who put money into those funds. Um, and, and very frankly, right, the, the model of venture is uh, for every 10 companies you invest in, one or two will return you know, the vast majority of the fund, if not the whole fund, and make you all the profit. Uh, another two or three might survive, but won't turn out to be particularly interesting, and the rest will die. Um, that is, they'll go bankrupt or be acquired for parts or, you know, uh, collapse. And that's actually a desirable thing because, you know, uh, a venture partnership only has a certain number of uh, people on staff, right? Venture partners who can invest and they, they don't have time to sit on 50 boards. Maybe they can sit on 10 or 12, right? They can make 10 or 12 investments, maybe 15 or 20, uh, but so they need a lot of the companies that they invest in to die so that they can put all their energy and effort and the next round of funding into the ones that look like they're going to become, you know, Airbnb and Uber and Google and, you know, Facebook and those things. And was that your desire to be that like behemoth of a company? I think my desire was I wanted to be one of the cool kids. Right. I wanted to do what um, what the media and startup culture and tech crunch and, you know, all the people I admired said was the amazing thing to do, which is to become um, these, you know, billion dollar public companies, unicorns. Right. That's what's glorified in the startup world. And then, you know, at the at the other side of that is the worst thing you can possibly be the. Uh, pejoratively used lifestyle company, meaning, you know, maybe you have a technically successful business that's making you millions of dollars a year and is profitable, but it is not taking over the world and becoming a monopoly and returning billions of dollars to its investors. And for some reason, that is a terrible thing. And, you know, being big and dominant uh, is the right thing. And, And I got caught in that just like, many, many other entrepreneurs do, right? Thinking that that's the only way to be successful. And that's the, um, that's the outcome you're supposed to pursue. At what point then did you feel, did you realize that this pursuit for being one of the cool kids was not all it was cracked up to be? I don't know. I think it was a slow realization that there were many frustrating problems and issues with it that didn't align with my, you know, personal philosophy or my, um, desires for what, what I wanted to be and do, um, or what I wanted Moss to become. But I don't know that I outright ever came to the, you know, the conclusion of, oh, this is definitely wrong. Um, especially because I, I really do like our investors. I think they made me better at my job. I think venture capital, you know, raising uh, that that first round in 2007 and the next round in 2012, uh, I think that made me a smarter, better, more thoughtful, experienced, more networked entrepreneur. Um, I think you know, I think those experiences will actually help me in the rest of my career. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I think maybe that realization didn't come until perhaps after I stepped down as CEO. Can you tell us about why you stepped down as CEO? And when, when that happened, what brought it about? Sure. Yeah. So in, um, in 2013, uh, I had an episode of depression, um, that lasted into the next year and sort of made the decision with, um, with one of my board members, Brad Feld to, 
um, you know, I called up Brad, I told him where I was at. I said, I think, you know, I think maybe we should think about making Sarah who Sarah bird, who's, uh, who was Maza's chief operating officer, um, and had been for a few years, uh, promoting her to the CEO role. And, um, you know, Brad said that he, he agreed, he understood where I was coming from. Um, and we made that change in 2014. Can you tell me about that experience of calling your investor up? Um, had you told him that you'd been going through depression? Did it come as a surprise to anyone? I actually think that at the time I called him, I didn't know, I didn't know to call it that. Um, I think I worked with a therapist in, in 2014 who sort of helped me more along those lines. Um, but I would have definitely said, you know, I would have definitely said, Oh, I'll, I was in a bad place emotionally. And I don't know if my decisions are the most rational right now. And, you know, I'm really sad and angry at everything in the world. And I think those were probably more of the words that I used rather than depression, because I think at the time I still had, you know, in my head, a little bit of a, I don't know, sense that admitting to something like that was, you know, saying that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. And I don't know that I couldn't be trusted or, you know, that I wasn't a good enough person. I'm I'm really not sure, but, but you know, those kinds of stigmas that are associated with, with mental health and depression stuff. Um, I think I still had a lot of those myself. Yeah. Would you consider yourself a more logical or more emotional person in general? (laughs) Huh? It's funny. So when I, you know, when I left Moz, I think my CEO gave a a quote about my departure that was like, well, you know, Rand's a very emotional person. Um, so he can be like this, but, um, yeah, I think I'm probably perceived as pretty emotional, which is, which is okay. Uh, which is okay by me, but I don't know. Uh, it's hard for me to say, Oh yeah, I'm emotional. And that is on the opposite end of the spectrum from logical. I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think that logic and emotion are not opposites. Because I, I ask because I think talking to people about uh, mental health and um, especially depression, there's this, I mean, there's definitely a sort of blockage, right? Like I don't want to label myself as this. And there's that fear of looking at like, wow, is this actually the label I would put upon myself or just like almost a lack of willingness to like admit the sorts of like real emotions that are happening. Um, Can you just talk us through that? um, I guess that, that emotional journey. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about what it felt like to be in you know, in my head at the time, which was just, you know, extremely negative worldview, um, especially about everything to do with, uh, with the company and a very, you know, sort of a, a deep sense that, well, I'll give you an example, maybe, maybe the best example, right? So, um, and I, I talked a bunch about this, there's a chapter in the book about it, but, uh, there, you know, the example that I recall pretty well is I'd go to conferences and events, right? I was still doing a lot of speaking at the time. And, you know, a lot of time after I'd give a talk, there'd be a line of people next to the stage, you know, to come, they come up and chat to you after uh, about, you know, whatever their, their particular SEO issue is or something that I said in the talk. Some, a lot of those folks were, you know, were there to say really kind things, right? They'd say, Oh my gosh, I love, you know, I love this product from Moz or I love what you've done with the company. Um, and I don't know that I'm terrific at taking, at accepting compliments anyway, but during that depression, um, I remember that, you know, I do just crazy things like, um, when someone would say something nice about Moz, I'd try and convince them that actually we weren't very good at that thing and they should use this other competitor's product, or they should go check out this other thing to try and solve their problem or, I would, I would badmouth the company, you know, publicly um, and <laughs> complain about how we weren't getting things done and, you know, how frustrated I was with, um, with our progress. Uh, and I tried to be good about not picking on individuals, but I definitely probably picked on teams. Yep. Just unhealthy things, things that you don't, you don't want in a leader's behavior. 
Yeah. Would you, would you say that there was a lot of shame that you were feeling? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ton of shame. Just the feeling like, feeling like I was letting everyone down, um, myself included, but yeah, my investors, our customers, the SEO community, uh, Maz's employees. Um, so how did you finally, I guess, get to that point where you were like, this has got to end? Oh, I mean, I think you get to that point right away. It's not, it's just that knowing, you know, um, knowing that you ha- are in that kind of state and that you want it to go away doesn't, doesn't mean that it will. Um, yeah, I think depression is a funny funny thing that way. It's not, um, you know, it's not like knee surgery. <laughs> oh, my knee's broken. Okay. I'll go in and get surgery and then, then I'll be fixed. I think that the path to healing is, um, often long, it's arduous, it's different for everyone. Right. So, you know, my particular experience is not going to be, I, I think that that was super frustrating for me when people would say, Oh yeah, you're going through this. You know, I read about it. You should try this. It's like, yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Everyone has their, their bit of advice, but, um, you know, there's not, there's not a single path for everyone that makes it real hard. Yeah. I read somewhere that, um, one in three founders is going through depression or has experienced depression. Um, and it's weird because it's just, no one really talks about it. Um, I mean, I guess it's not weird. It's just, it's crazy how prevalent it is. And it's like just a, this thing that we're all dealing with alone. <laughs> well, it's, I would say it's a, it's a little crazy, right? Because if you can think of any other problem that uh, founders or early stage companies have, there are 500 articles posted to LinkedIn every day on how to solve those. Right. <laughs> um, and I think and that's uh, the logical approach, right? It's like five steps to healing your depression. One, two, yeah. here's this mental model of how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, sounds, sounds pretty good. Doesn't, doesn't work that way. Yeah. How do you think people can connect more with their feelings? I think especially as entrepreneurs who are just used to having an idea, going for it, taking action, and then always needing to feel like there's momentum. Um, and it's very easy to one, just let go of yourself physically and not take care of your body. And two, um, let go of yourself emotionally and just not care about how you're actually feeling on a day to day. Um, what can we do to tap more into that? I mean, I certainly know that there's been a movement towards, um, better self-awareness and techniques for that, that include, you know, things like, um, meditation and, you know, engaging in therapy, which I, which I, um, I, I heartily support the second, the, the first hasn't worked great for me, but I know some people who've loved it. Um, and endorse it. I think uh, one of the best things that we can do sort of as a community of folks in the, you know, in the world, in the professional world, just at all is to stop glorifying um, surface level strength, right. And this projection of, uh, strength and the diminishment of any signs of weakness and the unwillingness to talk about that. Um, that's, that's poisonous. I, and, and I think it's really unhealthy. I think that drives a lot of the shame that people who experience, you know, anxiety and depression and, um, and even just emotions like, like fear and, um, sadness, um, and, experiences like failure, um, which let's not forget the venture model relies on seven out of 10 of us to fail entirely. Right. (laughs) Um, so you, know, you, you got to go in with your, with your eyes open, especially that path. And even, you know, even more broadly, I think, uh, small business five-year survival rates in the U S are something around 40% on average. Mm -hmm. So you know, most, most small businesses are not, um, are not going to make it. Most new businesses aren't going to make it. And, uh, the U S has done a really nice job of crafting a, um, a sort of cultural narrative of it's okay to fail and try again, more so than, than many other countries. 
Um, and that, you know, entrepreneurship that takes a couple stabs is all right, but we have yet to embrace this idea of it's okay to talk about it when you're not doing well. It's okay to um, struggle and you don't have to wait until you've overcome the struggle and gotten back to a place of strength and growth before you talk about the tough thing that you were going through. I see a lot of narratives that founders are willing to tell of, I had an amazing success. So let me tell you how hard it was to get here as opposed to I'm in a tough place right now. Yeah. Yeah. And this is around this whole, I mean, the whole basis of the enoughness podcast is this idea that success and enoughness don't come hand in hand. And fundamentally the people who we see as that they've made it, that they're super successful, that they have all this money that, you know, like they've raised all these rounds of funding that they must also be just extremely happy because they're killing it. Um, (laughs) So, so it seems like it, I mean, especially from all of these conversations that I've had, it's like, it's not even about overcoming the failure and now you're great. And now you're doing like super, it's like, it still is difficult. And there are still times that you question when maybe you're still not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I don't think that, I don't think that success, well, gosh, I don't think success is defined broadly enough. Um, I think that the narrowness of whatever you want to call it, right? Late stage capitalism is success equals you have 10 to a hundred times more money than you will ever need in your life. Um, and, uh, only, you know, half a percent of people get there. Uh, and so that's what it means as opposed to there's a path for anyone and everyone to be successful. How would you define success for yourself now? Oh, no, no. I'm still on the treadmill. Um, (laughs) I, (laughs) despite being a deep, deep critic of all of these things, Um, I still have a fundamental, you know, sort of underlying belief that I'm not good enough. Um, even being aware of this, right. So I, you know, I remember as a kid, um, like my dad would describe me to, you know, friends or family members, that kind of thing. be like, Oh, Rand, he's a, he's a good kid, you know, high potential, but low achiever. (laughs) And, and I, uh, yeah, even though I know that that is not a healthy way to think, I, I actually still agree with him on that. I think that I'm um, capable of much more and I'm sort of always beating myself up about needing to do better. Um, so yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm, uh, I'm trapped in the same mindset as a lot of other people. What do you think it will take to, I guess, get off that treadmill? Is it even possible? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, I think I want to believe that there's a future in which the stories that receive amplification and praise and notoriety are not just Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Jeff Bezos, but that a more, a more diverse set of stories get to be told and earn praise and have admirers and followers in their footsteps. Uh, and maybe that, maybe that's going to mean that we need a little more, um, and this, this is happening a little bit right now, you know, a little more, uh, demonization (laughs) um, and, and recognition of the, um, the ills that, that this immense power and wealth concentration creates. Um, and maybe, maybe that can open things up a little bit more, but I, yeah, I would love to see maybe some different kinds of stories get glorified. Can you tell me about some of the entrepreneurs that you do admire in terms of their ability to share the alternative narrative? Yeah, gosh. Um, I mean, definitely someone who's been, an outspoken amplifier of that is Cortland Allen, uh, who's the founder of Indie Hackers and has sort of, you know, built up this wonderful community of folks who are, you know, um, most of them are bootstrapped. Um, many, many of them are 
you know, just one and two person teams trying to get a basic product off the ground. Um, and I think that's awesome. Uh, I really love, you know, as far as, uh, internally at, at companies, um, I love what Kim Scott has put out, uh, with her book, radical candor and talking about the, um, different ways to behave, uh, towards each other in professional life. Um, you know, employee to employee or, or manager to employee or leadership team to, uh, to their teams. Um, I have loved the sort of counter venture narrative from, uh, Bryce Roberts and the, and the Indy VC group. Uh, that's been really cool. And then, um, I think it's Jennifer Brandel and Mara Zapeta from, um, zebras, not unicorns. Mm. They created a, a really, really cool movement. I think they just had their first big event around that DazzleCon, which is, you know, this idea that, that, um, you don't need to be a unicorn and pursue that path. You can pursue becoming a, a zebra type of company, right? Which is basically, you know, sort of bootstrapped, profit, profitable, um, serving a broader community and just it's, it's investors. Uh, yeah. So there's, there, there are some voices out there. So how much money did you, did you actually raise for Moz in the end? Moz has raised 20, 29.1 million. Got it. Um, and I was reading about, um, you know, that year that you went through depression. And uh, one of the things that you talked about was how arrogance led to it. Um, can you talk more about your thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, I think that you, so Moz during the first six years that I was CEO grew a hundred percent year over year. Um, you know, to basically $30 million in revenue when I stepped down and, uh, or sorry, maybe that was right before I stepped down, but, um, you know, that journey of having a lot of class, you know, what would be considered classic success, right? Growth, revenue growth, customer growth, those up into the right metrics led me to believe that I was really good at this. Right. And um, they made me think that I knew what I was doing and could make decisions relatively unilaterally without a lot of other input and that they would be the right and correct ones that would lead to more of this kind of growth. Um, and once you do that a few times and it works, then you really start to believe your own bullshit. <laughs> and uh, that that I think is when you are, are ripe for missteps. Uh, and certainly that's, that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I um, sort of had a theory about where the web marketing field was going and what products would be needed in the future. And rather than validate those and try and build something that people told us they wanted, um, you know, I decided that we should build this thing that was my personal grand vision um, and spend, spend, you know, two years working on it and basically sideline any existing product work to improve what we had. And yeah, that, that was, um, proved to be pretty much a waste and really, really, really harm the company's growth potential and, and market position and how people thought about the brand. You know, when we launched that product, tons of people were excited. My God, I think it was like, you know, gosh, almost a hundred thousand people signed up for that, you know, for that product initially. And, you know, when it came down to it, I think, uh, it actually resulted in negative growth of customers when we moved, when we moved people over to it and, you know, um, and actually got the live product in people's hands. So just, uh, yeah, great marketing for a terrible product idea. Coming from a position, well, where I stand in leading a community of female entrepreneurs and seeing the you know, different types of dynamics there, one thing that I think about a lot is this traditional notion of being a CEO, which is largely couched in masculine terms, sure, uh, yeah. is, you know, being overconfident, um, arrogant, aggressive, making unilateral decisions. Um, 
And then a lot of women who do come in saying like, I'm going to be a female founder and a CEO, but don't necessarily fit into that traditional model. Um, Certainly that was a, a journey that I went through where I thought to myself, because I'm not like this, is there something wrong with me? So do you feel like that is something that you see more in men than in women who are entrepreneurs? Mm. Let's see. Uh, in aggregate, some yes. By percentage, no. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I suspect my, my guess is that um, women who become CEOs and entrepreneurs, especially in like venture backed tech world, um, tend to have to lean even more into that traditional notion of yeah, masculinity leadership style, uh, because that's what like the world demands from them, even if that's not who they want to be or are, although I'm sure some of them are right. Um, I don't, I don't want to not allow for that, that possibility. In fact, I think, um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, uh, Sarah, who's Maz's CEO now is a much more like classically masculine leader than I am. You know, if you, if you, if you remove our genders and just look at our like behavior and communication style and how we interact with people, I think, um, yeah, you'd probably see a more, yeah, that I, that I have a lot of things that are just very, right. As she said, I'm very emotional. I, I, yeah. very emotional. Um, so I think that, 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 um, it sucks for women, but it sucks for men too. Mm-hmm. It's not, but it sucks for both. It sucks for everyone. It's terrible for everyone to have these gendered archetypes uh, and this tradition that you're supposed to fit into because it doesn't allow us to be us. Mm-hmm. Um, and by us, I mean everyone, right? It, it, if, if you um, are a guy and you uh, want to behave in certain ways or you know want to let your um, unique personality and your sort of authentic self uh, be out there to the world at work, um, that is probably going to harm your, you know, how your, how your professional, uh, colleagues view you. Um, and for women, likewise, right. The, the same, the same thing is true. I think for women, it's even harder because you have to walk this like flawless tightrope of, you know, not being seen as, uh, too aggressive, but also being aggressive enough not to be seen as weak. And it's just, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that there's something to be said about, it's just the system and the social norms that are toxic to everyone um, that have been so entrenched and, um, you know, I go to obviously a lot of um, female entrepreneurial events and talking through biases when it comes to the fundraising process. And I think um, I'm, I am increasingly, you know, curious to hear from guys who are also saying like, here are the challenges that we're going through. Here's how this sort of toxic masculinity within the whole system um, is affecting us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, uh, even a lot of men who might not phrase it that way or know how to say it, uh, feel the experience of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're familiar with that, um, that pain and frustration. And, and even if they don't put words to it that are, um, gendered or that recognize the role that, you know, um, uh, gender norms and expectations play in that, uh, they still, they still experience it. They still struggle with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to fast forward now to um, more recently uh, when you left Moz. Um, Can you tell us what happened? Sort of. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can tell you some of the things that happened. So yeah, let's see. So I, um, I left my last day was February 28th. So just about a month ago. Um, you know, didn't leave under awesome circumstances, but I still, uh, have, you know, a 
a lot of uh, friends at the company and a lot of um, hope and belief in the company's future. I, um, I obviously have a big financial interest. So my wife and I own just under 24% of the company still. Um, and uh, I, uh, I'm still chairman of Moz's board. Um, I'm still helping them with a, with a new uh, product they're, they're going to be launching soon. Uh, so yeah, still involved in some ways, but um, yeah, I had kind of a, had a sad, frustrating departure experience. Um, and I, I won't go into too much detail about it, but uh, yeah, I think, I think unfortunately what's common, what's sad is that it's quite common for founders um, to find themselves, you know, no, no longer with their, the companies they started um, some years in. So that's, I mean, that's actually a story that isn't really told. So going back to this whole idea of like, what are the dominant narratives that we hear, which is up and to the right hockey stick growth curve. And I actually think this whole sub narrative where you're saying like, this actually happens to a lot of founders. I don't actually think a lot of beginning entrepreneurs actually know, um, Mm. or even entrepreneurs in the midst of their journeys. Like it's not a consideration upfront that like, let me think about how large of a stake investors will get. Let me think about, you know, what, what is it like to make sure I strategically own a certain percentage? Um, so I guess to be more direct, like you wrote in your blog post, um, that on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is being fired and escorted out of the building by security and 10 is being left entirely of your own accord on wonderful terms that your departure was around a four. Um, what does that actually mean? So like <laughs> what happened? Uh, well, so I, I mean, this is, you know, I think this is part of the, um, uh, I love to be very transparent and, the way I wrote that blog post is as far as I really can go. Got it. So that, uh, unfortunately that's one of those frustrating things, um, you know, for me too, because I, I, I would love to, to talk about it more. I, I guess, I mean, what I can say is that um, I had a lot of professional conflict with leadership that led to personal conflict that led to more professional conflict and, and eventually departure. Got it. And do you feel like then there's something to prove now? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, I, I would say that it's a very large chip on my shoulder that um, that I I definitely feel the weight of wanting to. Yeah, I, I would love. I would love if in years to come, Spark Toro. Um, you know, does well. And and that can mean a lot more different things than Moz doing well because of the the structure of, you know, this company versus that one. But um, yeah, I would absolutely love to have some people wake up one morning and go, Oh, I'm not sure we were right about him. (laughs) For the audience. What is Spark Toro? Uh, So I, it's a brand new company. uh, And the, the basic idea is to, help marketers and, um, and entrepreneurs and businesses identify the publications and people that influence their audience. So if, you know, you and I start a lighting design business and we want to figure out, uh, how do we reach interior designers? Uh, we could go use this tool to try and figure out, Hey, what, what podcasts do interior designers listen to and uh, what YouTube channels are they subscribed to? And, you know, who do they follow on Twitter and Instagram and what websites do they read? You know, where do they get their industry news? Uh, what events do they go to? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Got it. And you're also writing a book about your, your journey. Uh, I mean, the book is done. Thank God. <laughs> uh, so lost and founder, it comes out April 24th. Awesome. Um, and yeah, the pre-orders are already going. So uh, yes, thankfully, thankfully I get to focus mostly on this new company. Awesome. Yeah. I got my copy. So I'm excited to dig in. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So do you feel, do you even feel pressure for that book to do really well? Are you going to be putting a lot of energy into distributing that and marketing that doing a whole book tour? Uh, some, yeah. I'm, I'm going to a few cities, uh, 
all, I think all the conferences I'm speaking at this year are, you know, sort of ordering copies of the book. And, um, but I would say, I actually feel, I feel like the book in a lot of ways can stand on its own. I'm not sure if that's quite fair, but just, uh, let's see, I would say, I feel, I feel proud of the product, mm-hmm. which, um, which is something that I, I have not always felt in my career. And so I'm, uh, I'm excited to have, to have that. I, I hope that it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, if a few thousand people, as opposed to tens or hundreds of thousands of people read it and they can avoid a lot of the painful mistakes that I made and we made, uh, that will certainly be good enough. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thank you so much for being honest about your entire experience. I think it's going to be really valuable for the people listening and especially for entrepreneurs um, who may or may not be going through very, very similar experiences. Um, I'm excited to read your book. I'm excited for it to get launched. Um, so hopefully um, some of the other listeners will also be interested in reading it. Awesome. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks, Lisa. Um, okay, great. And the way that I end every episode is just with the one thing, because I think, you know, even in what we were talking about, oftentimes it just takes one voice, one story, um, one perspective to change someone else's life. So, um, you've certainly been through a journey and I want to go through just some of your one things. Oh yeah. Okay. Ready? Um, okay. So what is one piece of advice that you would give to an entrepreneur just starting out in their journey? Uh, I would say that you should let your own desires dictate what you want to build and how you want to build it rather than letting the stories that are most amplified or well-known dictate the path that you think you're supposed to pursue. What's the one thing that makes you happy on a day-to-day basis? Oh, my wife, Geraldine. (laughs) What's the best thing about her? Oh, gosh. I think, I mean, the best thing about her for me is how much she loves me and how unconditional that love is Um, and how she's willing to, you know, be we, we, I think we both try and be the best partners that we can be to each other. Um, and that support is, is just wonderful. But for other people, uh, who are not me, I suspect they would say her humor. Uh, she's a, a humor writer and an author, um, and a pseudo famous person on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and, and most of her, most of the things that she writes and says are, um, laugh out loud funny. What's her Twitter handle? Uh, it's at everywhereist. Got it. What's one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend? Oh gosh. Well, I, I recommended uh, Kim Scott's radical candor already. Um, I, I just started reading uh, Patty McCord from Netflix is powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, has been very, very good. I am also a fan. Uh, Gabriel Weinberg did a, a really nice book on um, achieving growth at startups called Traction mm-hmm. that I found really helpful. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, what's one adjective that you would use to describe yourself? Contrarian. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> one tip for those looking to up their SEO game. Ooh, uh, solve the searcher's whole problem better than anyone else on page one of the results does. <laughs> you give an example. Sure. So if someone searches for, um, best cuts of beef, don't, don't just, uh, create a list that has, you know, Oh, this is whatever it is. Food and wines, you know, top five cuts of beef as recommended. Someone who's searching for that probably also wants to prepare it, probably also wants to know what it goes with, probably wants to make a recipe, probably wants to find a great butcher in their area or someone online who can send them a really high quality cut of that particular uh, kind of beef, right? And so take them all the way through that process, solve the entire task 
not just the one thing um, that you've extracted out. And, it, and if you can do a better job of solving that whole thing for them, uh, you, can, you can often win. I'd, I'd also say in that, don't just try and sell them something, right? A lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs think that they can rank, you know, oh, well, I have a website that sells, I don't know, beef online, right? So I want to try and rank for that. Well, if you want to try and rank for that, you can't just sell your own stuff. You know, Google is looking for the editorially uh, most helpful, most trustworthy content. And very often that is not going to come from a single provider. And so, you know, you've got to take that into consideration too. Got it. Um, What's one mantra that you live by? I'm going to say in the immortal words of Bill and Ted, be excellent to each other. (laughs) And so different when you add the each other to the end. (laughs) Um, and then lastly because i want to make this podcast as actionable as possible for all of our listeners what is one small action one small challenge that you would want to issue to the listeners that they could do right now that they could do today oh gosh Uh, i think i would tell folks question one of your core beliefs Go take something that you believe fundamentally that you think is absolutely true and ask yourself why you believe it and what the source of your belief is and uh, what all of the competing opinions out there could potentially be. Um, And if you were forced to argue, you know, if you had to get on stage and debate someone who held that same belief you do and you had to win that debate, you know, your, your entire bank account rests on you winning that debate. How would you go about attacking attacking your own position. I think that um, getting to a place where we have strong opinions that are loosely held and easily modifiable by new information uh, or data is one of the best ways you can become a better entrepreneur and a better person. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rand. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too, Lisa. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.